Hello friends, how's it going? It's Matt, you're listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, the show where I try and uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for tuning in. If it's your first time, thanks for navigating your way to my little corner of the internet. Hope you enjoy it. My guest this week is Mike Guest, photographer, surfer, and one of the people behind an online project you might have seen called Dawn Days. Dawn Days began when Mike and his pal Nick Pumphrey started documenting the start of each day from the water and sharing the results online. Soon, other people picked up the idea and began doing the same. And today, almost a year later, Dawn Days has become a bit of a movement with more and more people joining in, sharing their own experiences. And it's become a way of exploring issues related to mental health, our personal connection to nature, and also the very notion of community during the COVID and post-COVID era. The right idea at the right time, I'm a big believer in that. And it's clear that Dawn Days really struck a chord with a lot of people as a way of coping with, well, the weirdest year any of us can remember. I'm a, I'm a friend of Mike's. I know him a little bit from round and about. And it's been really interesting watching this idea unfold and also see how Mike and Nick have nurtured it as it's been picked up by the wider world. So I thought I'd get Mike on the show for a chat about Dawn Days and also about his own life and career. As usual, this conversation took on a bit of a life of its own. Yeah, we went into the details of Dawn Days and Mike's circuitous path through the industry, but we also talked a lot about his experience with dyslexia, which in many ways has defined his entire outlook and certainly informed Dawn Days and certainly informed the position he finds himself in today. I think you're going to really, really like this one. It's great. I really enjoyed it. Big thanks to Mike for coming on the show and laying it all out there. I'll be back at the end, but here's me and Mike, Dawn Days. Enjoy. So where are you? Uh, I am at home in Edinburgh, just having a cup of tea, warming up, because somehow it got down to minus three again. Wow, right. So the false spring occurred. Yeah, every every year, to be perfectly honest, like people wander around going, "Oh, I can't believe it! Oh, oh, it's so chilly!" And you're like, "Really? Come on!" You know, it's it's kind of always like this. We get that snap, you get lambing season. Everyone hopes there's no lambing rain, you know, and uh, and then they hope they don't get this freeze snap. And uh, yeah, so I think we've got a week of it. Right. Okay. And then uh, are you working? You're, so you're working at the minute, right? You're on a job. Is that right? I just finished uh, last, I've had a week off now, so I just did an eight-week shoot, or um, in fact, was it eight weeks? Setting up for a shoot um, on an Amazon Prime drama, and I was actually the forklift driver for the carpentry department. Right. How's that? Interesting? Ah, brilliant. You know what? After so much time fiddling about on our own, it was really great to see a bunch of mates and just do something completely different again. Like get back to the old, like hitting stuff and lifting stuff. It really, it was brilliant. I did not have a bad day. Yeah, I saw some friends on Saturday um, in London. It's the first time I've been in London for over, definitely for over a year. Um, and went, went to, took the van up, went, went and saw some friends through Barbie in their garden, stayed in the van. And it was, it was really great. Like we we were like, my wife afterwards was like, yeah, that's, feels like that's the most relaxed I've been in in months, really. 
you know, just to actually do something quite quite normal, like hang out in a garden with some mates. Yeah, it was really, really nice, especially with the weather coming back as well. Oh, yeah, we've we've been some great weather. And the same with on that job, you know, we had everything from minus 14 outside you know, to minus four in the workshop to like, you know, sunbathing at lunch. And there was just 16 kind of pals, really. Our friend Gav's the head of department and it was it was all mates of Gav's. And it was just a total pleasure to hang out with a bunch of carpenters who are generally pretty chilled folk uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, you were saying when we chatted on the phone that you uh, you like you like the carpentry chat you like you like the on job chat oh yeah like the banter i guess as it gets cold in scotland like um i think after doing 12 years in the event industry doing lighting sound rigging projection kind of everything really the biggest part of that for me was just the pals and the crews that we worked with i was never really that great a technician but i managed to blether my way into jobs yeah it's good a lot of camaraderie in those environments yeah, you have to. It's you're doing ridiculous hours and you're on the road for months sometimes and minimal sleep and you just kind of cut through all the BS and and just kind of get on with it. So yeah, there's you know, lifelong friends that I've made around the world with having done that kind of job for 10 12 years. And are you, are you based in Edinburgh? Is that cause for some reason I thought you I didn't realize you were based in Edinburgh. But you move around a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. I am based in Edinburgh. This is probably the first time I've been in the same place for this length of time in 21 years. So I do live and base here, but pretty much work wherever and whenever. And then when I'm not working, I'm generally in the back of the van chasing surf or bumbling around with a camera hanging out. So how how do you define what you do? That's the classic question, isn't it? What do you tell your mum? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. Don't yeah. think my mum still worked out what I do. If- no, I think my parents are constantly surprised that, you know, it's me and my sister are very similar like that. She lives over in New Zealand. I'm here, but we both had really bizarre trajectories. You know, at the moment, I'm a photographer and filmmaker if I was to put myself in a pigeonhole. But, you know, I've got no problem with doing eight weeks driving a forklift. It actually made me even hungrier and have even more focus as to what I wanted to do afterwards. I wasn't itching to finish the job. Actually, I was incredibly sad. So yeah, I just jack of all, you know, motor mouth with a camera at the moment. That's about it. So you've always balanced. You've never, you never like had a, like a grand plan. It's always just been projects that you're passionate about, jobs that come along. Cause obviously you've had some, I mean, we met when you were doing a Patagonia job, didn't like, when was that like three years ago? So and our paths have crossed like a fair amount. We've got loads of mates in common, like blah, 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 all that stuff. You know, it's all like such a small little world we occupy, isn't it? Um, but yeah, like, see, so you've always just been pretty happy to sort of chase those opportunities as they came along. Yeah, I think the way my life has panned out and more recently, I'm realizing that that's due to my dyslexia and the way that my brain works and what I need to do to be captivated, interested, motivated. I do need variety. And probably this, this this photography film element has been really regimented and I've really been kind of pushing that and working on that. And I think I lost sight of how important it was for me to do other stuff. 
and to not worry about the fact that some people might think that means you're not a proper photographer or a proper filmmaker. I think I get so much from that balance and yeah, my brain prefers that. I'm laser focused for a while and then I'm kind of trimming along and I go, ooh, pretty light. Let's try that. Can we talk about your dyslexia since you since you brought it up? Because obviously that's something you're you're really um vocal about, like and not vocal is probably the wrong word, but you know, it's something that you're very open about, let's put it that way. Um you know, as you as you should be. Like why wouldn't you be? Um, but my wife's actually dyslexic as well. It's been really fascinating. She was diagnosed quite late um, in life, which I think is quite common for our generation, isn't it? I think these days, you know, I don't have kids, so it's not something I'm particularly familiar with. But my understanding is that these days they can spot it quite early and they can, they're, they're, they're much more able to sort of provide kids with a, a relevant learning environment to to accommodate that whereas from speaking to my wife and just anecdotally from what I know from other people our age that have been diagnosed with dyslexia that obviously wasn't really a thing for us and you know it's like well well told stuff but you know there was a certainly I'm just gonna use my my wife as an example because it's it's the person I know about like certainly in her case you know the classic thing she was kind of like led to believe she was basically stupid like she couldn't learn in the right way and that like has, I mean, that shaped her whole life. Like, there's no doubt about that. You know, like she, she, I would say she's just, she's 42. I would say she's only really in the last five years actually understood like what, what she needs to do creatively and, and in terms of work to feel, I mean, happy is even understating it just, just to sort of like get through life in, in a way really, you know, so I guess that's a very long preamble to ask, like how, how, how was that for you? Was that something that you were aware of from a young age? Has it, has it shaped the way that your life is, as you know, like obviously you, you work very visually, um, you, you know, even when we communicate, you know, you, you, you're quite, you, you're quite open. You're like, I'm going to do voice messages cause I, you know, it's easier for me. You know, you, re- you really own it basically. So how how's that was that like an early thing or is that like i'm talking about with my wife been like quite a late realization for you so my dyslexia was picked up by my mum actually when i was in primary four she just kind of knew something was up like as a kid i was quite almost tormented actually would be the best way to put it my mum said by the whole school experience the first place i was at you know, she literally had to tear me out of the car every single morning to put me there, kicking and screaming and crying. And it just broke her heart. And she thought, there's something up, you know? And very early on, she pushed and pushed and pushed and they said, nothing, no, 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 you know, he's just slow, he's just stupid. And and that has stayed with me, you know, my whole life. And then we managed to get out of that school and there started to be this light. But, you know, for me, it was... I forgot and she told me the other day again she said you forget this every single time is that for like three years you'd go to bed we'd hear this thud upstairs we'd hear a scream we'd come up and you'd be having night terrors and you'd be soaked in sweat just at the thought of having to walk through those doors and sit in this room with all these words and numbers flying about with everyone getting it and me just sitting there going what the fuck's going on and so it was pretty brutal and I was really lucky that they picked it up. 
but it stuck it stuck with me the whole of my life from a very young age someone and i wish i could remember who it was turned around to me and said look mike you need to think of your dyslexia as a superpower and it was an older dyslexic that's all i can remember and he just said just think of it as a superpower you can see things in 3d and i just thought all oh, right okay and and it's taken me a long time in fact until friday or no was it friday we were going to talk thursday um i got interviewed for a dyslexic podcast randomly and this guy also made me realize i know nothing about my dyslexia and actually there's so much more to it and it has completely shaped my whole life but what has been super helpful is when i did as you said start to own it i put something at the bottom of my email saying you know this was sent with a smattering of dyslexia please excuse any errors um i tell people look i'll try voice dictate but i'm probably going to send voice messages you don't have to send one you can type back so yeah i mean literally this weekend i'm kind of glad we didn't talk on friday because i've had kind of three or four days to really kind of think about it a lot when i i mean when i think back to my school i i you know i'm a little bit older than you maybe i'm like 44 45 in two months which is vaguely terrifying oh, hey. <laughs> But I think, you know, I, I was like a super bookish kid. Like, I, you know, I, I just, whatever the opposite of dyslexia is, I think I probably had. Like, you know, I just had had a real affinity with reading and, and the written word and that, that means of processing information, which is obviously what it is, you know. And I think when I look back, and obviously I got treated like really differently in school because of that. Like I was kind of earmarked as like a bright kid, you know, and because I suited that system of learning and yeah like was sort of told from an early age yeah you'll do quite well you know you could probably go to university if you want and and was kind of like almost given special treatment really by teachers and when i look back there was definitely kids that i think yeah they just must have been dyslexic like they're just you know that just wasn't being picked up and it's such a it's it's heartbreaking really isn't it because it's such a lottery you know like and it does it does a it does really affect like the way that your life turns out. And the other thing is as well, like it, one thing I've learned from my wife is it's not just a question of not being able to interpret information that way. It's actually like neurologically very challenging, isn't it? You know, it's very, it's very tiring. It's very emotionally difficult at times. It's not just like the physical thing. It's, it's actually everything that comes with it. That's, that's really difficult. And it doesn't, again, I think it's different for younger kids now, but doesn't really come with a huge amount of support like you know what you're describing is the fact that your mum picked it up and then you've essentially had to negotiate these challenges yourself right yeah I mean people can help you people can notice it but like you say it's so much more nuanced than just reading and writing and and sometimes I have focused too much on that and what I learned last week again was this affects the way I deal with work with emotion, with relationships, all of that stuff. You know, it's to have a dyslexic brain, depending what where you're at, at how what speed you function, like my brain works at a ridiculous rate at points. Some people might not think that and just think there's a lot of air in between this hair, which there is. <laughs> but like for me to be able to like download all the information, that's the hardest bit. Because I think in a 3D space. So kind of like I joke and call it my matrix, 
you know, and, and there's a lot of stuff spinning around there, but it allows me to pull things in. But trying to then put that down into a kind of linear 1D space, like you'll see beside me here, there's like a big whiteboard there. And then there's like another one here, you know, I'm forever having to offload these things. Otherwise, it's just, it gets to the, it kind of gets to a breaking point. And for me, that breaking point is kind of like, not a meltdown, but it's just an overload. I get anxious. Um, I get stressed. I completely drop the ball on things. And people ultimately can probably think that I'm really flaky. But it's not that I'm flaky. It's just that I've moved past that. Like, I'm I'm going 100 miles an hour. So something that's really helped recently is I've actually managed to find an assistant that I can work with uh, on an hourly rate. She's a pal of mine. She's someone that's family, which is important to me. I trust her with everything. She's got every login, Millie, you know, to my whole life. But as we start to work together and I start to throw things, I'm literally like throwing things at a wall at her. You know, that's why I joke. But she collates it and put it, puts it into places. And then once or twice a week, she distills down like, hey, have you replied to this person, this person? Have you done that? Have you thought about that? You know, and that, is relieving so much stress. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I, I was going to say as well is, I don't know if ableist is the right word, um, but, you know, society is so not used to even, like, on the micro level, like, helping people that have a condition like dyslexia deal with that issue. You know, like, let's take the voice memo example, like, as a really trivial example. Like, I... I I actually hate receiving voice memos like, be, but that's like a really dickish thing on my part. Like, so I, like I, I never listen to my antiphone messages, which I'm like totally notorious for amongst all my friends. Like, and I honestly just, I don't know what it is. It's like, if I see him, I'm like, Oh God, I can't listen to that. Like, uh, we, you know, it's just one of those weird things. And when, I, and when people started sending me like voice memos on WhatsApp and that, I almost like made it like a bit of a dick. Like I don't fucking listen to these. Like I don't even listen to my <laughs> phone messages. I actually sent that to a couple of people. Like, and obviously I didn't mean anything by that. Like I was just being a bit of a bell end really, you know, like thinking I was being funny more than anything. But then when you messaged me, I thought, what shit, you know, like I'm not even thinking about that. I'm not even thinking about the fact that actually somebody that might just be a way of somebody making their life easier you know like and i'm i'm just like completely even on that tiny tiny level like you know it seems trivial but i guess like that's that's the sort of you know really it should just be yeah whatever who gives a course to listen to that you know like it's not a big deal but it's not even it's not even on people's radar that there might be reason for it at all and again that's something i've really noticed with with my wife that she finds really tiring it's almost like not only does she have this thing to deal with but she also has to do a lot of thinking for other people as well for whom it's just not on their radar at all you know like in situations like that and then obviously on way bigger more emotionally stressful situations as you've just alluded to like work and relationships and you know like it's and that and that's just like one one thing isn't it so how how, how do you does it, I, I'm guessing that can be mentally like extremely challenging to, to, to constantly be having to negotiate this type of thing. Yeah, I think 
I think what, again, something with all this time that I've kind of been afforded and everything that's happened, I've kind of also realized that I need to be, I need to meet people like with it as well. That some people really, really hate a voice message. And actually, I didn't realize there was a voice dictate button until recently. And it's freaking amazing. You know, so I'll do voice messages, but then actually sometimes I'm like, oh, I know that they can't listen to this at the moment because they're in bed, probably with their partner. They're, the partner's not awake, you know, so they won't be able to listen to that. So I learned to bend on that. And I think I also learned to think about you never know what someone is either going through or has gone through in their life. And kind of societally, it's, I don't think we have that com compassion anymore or not anymore you know with social media everyone's just out there poking and jabbing and maybe not thinking about what's going on behind the doors and I think even going back to what you talked about earlier at school you were told you're smart you're going to go far you know they're preconditioning you to that and then all the other people around you so no wonder we live in a really dog-eat-dog -dog world of capitalism when everyone's either told they're going to be a dummy or like you're going to make it right go and like just you know go and run for the hills there you know squash everyone below you yeah i mean we could go quite well it's such a, it's such a theme of the podcast though you know like the episode isn't when we're talking it's not out yet but it will be out by the time people hear this with andrew alexander king and you know and one of the themes we talked about in that is like how do you break out of the mold that you're that you're that is set for you when you're young you know, like, I mean, that's what this whole debate about race, diversity is actually about, really, isn't it? You know, like, how can you, how can, and why it's so insulting when people claim that those stru structures and, you know, um, institutional kind of structures don't exist. That's why it's such a load of bullshit, because clearly they exist, they exist for everybody. And, you know, like, this is kind of what we're talking about, isn't it? Like, how do you, it's such a theme, like, and I think it's one of the reasons people really enjoy the episodes that I call like life episodes, because really they're about how people have broken out of the, 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 the mold that they, you know, the, the path that they were on. And that's kind of when, when we, when you talk about like education in this way and like, and the things that you get told you should be doing as a kid and, you know, like that, that's kind of another factor of this, isn't it? Another kind of strand of this. It's like, because, yeah, you know, like, in my case, it's all very, like, very polite and nice. But even even so, I remember, I've talked about this before, but I remember when I met Ed Lee, we were really young. Like, I think I met Ed when I was, like, 17. He's, like, just fucking young idiots, you know what I mean? <laughs> and he, and I, and I, or maybe a bit older, but actually, no, I was a bit older, but we were about 20, thinking back. It's good definite sign I'm getting old, isn't it? Like, getting, getting those kind of details confused. <laughs> anyway, like, but he'd not been to university. And I'd been to university and, you know, because I'd kind of been told that's what I was going to do my whole life. That's just what I was going to, you know, like, I didn't really question it. And I, and I wanted to go as well. Like, and I remember meeting Ed and he was like, yeah, I didn't do that. I just went traveling. I thought that was a waste of time. And I remember being like, wow, you can do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> which is crazy, isn't it? You know, like, cause I've done, you know, I've done a lot of traveling at that point. I'd done, but it was just so far out of my kind of, life experience at that point and I was really like struck by that I was really like you know just even on that level the fact that he could just make a decision that was that that had taken him off his preordained path was was an impressive thing 
it's, and it's not easy it's not easy for anyone but when you've when you've got the added you know confines of these sort of preconceived ideas people have about you because of a condition like dyslexia it's 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 even harder isn't it you know absolutely and i think what's quite interesting about that was like i didn't even have the chance to go to uni in that sense that i managed to get a b no i will say a b it was actually a c in computing and the only reason i got that was the teacher dave wheel who's still someone i know he's still a pal saw something in me saw the way i was being treated by the head of department and thought you know what no i'm gonna help you out he tutored me on a sunday and he waved the carrot of i'm gonna teach you how to lead climb traditional trad style you know if you apply yourself and i was really into the climb you know he, he took the climbing after club and i was really into it and i thought oh my god like what an opportunity and that person along with a number of other people in my life just kind of believed in me yeah which gave me this opportunity to get there and to go back to the ed thing is actually quite amusing i can't remember where i met him and christian and it was back when i used to do stuff for red bull with a bunch of the guys and i remember meeting that pair and we're like oh my god like this is hilarious like you're these fuckwits <laughs> yeah these <laughs> maniacs make a living out of this and i remember just going wow you know like there's a few people that i've met at that time and it was only recently when when ed moved to new zealand and my sister lives there they've ended up working together you know it's a small bubble and she was like oh yeah this this guy arrived a ball of energy you know what he calls himself the Ron Burgundy of the snow or something. I'm not sure he calls himself that, but I've definitely, I've definitely heard that. Yeah, I yeah. said that to Ed when he moved to Wanaka. He was, uh, it's quite funny. I'm sure he won't mind me telling this story. And this is not a podcast about Ed, but it is quite funny. Um, he was quite nervous when he moved to New Zealand. He was a bit like, it was the only time in my life I've ever seen Ed have a crisis of confidence. It was, it was quite weird. And he, he was staying here at my place him and his family um and he, he was really he was really like yeah i was like wow this is mad i've never seen you not have confidence and i said to him like fucking hell you'll be running that town in, <laughs> in like in a year like what are you on about like don't don't worry about that you know but um and so it turned out he, uh, he ended up doing quite well <laughs> yeah and th there's an amazing pool of creatives organizers there's so much going on there like the level of photography and film work that comes out of Wanaka yeah. with the company, amazing. You know, like Jace Hancock's um, track tracks talent, doesn't it? That place, yeah. Two bearded men, Tim and Toby, my pal Ross. You know, it's just it's mental. But people make a conscious decision, like my sister did, like twenty years ago, and just went, "I want to be here," and this is not going to be easy because it is not an easy place or cheap place to try and carve a living. And everyone just did whatever it took to to carve a little chunk out. And, and when I transitioned from doing the kind of event world and lighting and sound and all that, my sister just said, look, do you want to come over? Let's see if we can get you a job waxing skis in Racer's Edge, the shop there. That's what everyone does. Every, you know, all her pals have done that. You know, it's, it's part of the, the way in as it were. And I waxed skis in the evening, skied during the day and fell in love with photography again and film and kind of, with a really great friend of Joe's, a guy called Ross, who I still speak to on a weekly basis. Some days it'll be daily, you know, and and it was just this thing where I went to this little bubble, as people call it, 
with a bunch of really, really passionate people. And it kind of just kind of put a rocket in my ass. Well, again, that, that those inspirations that we're talking about are also very, very important, aren't they? If you're going to try and find find your path. So that that teacher, right, that you mentioned uh, when you were when you were a kid that kind of obviously saw something in you and like encouraged you in that way. Was that your first was that your first introduction to the world of like, the you know, loosely termed the outdoors, like, you know, climbing, et cetera? Or did you, or did you grow up surfing? Uh, no, I've actually only surfed for 10 years um, and skiing was like a massive thing. So, you know, we raced as kids and uh, we'd batter up, up north and go and literally, you know, ski down 25 degree vert or ice, you know, Scottish sort of style. Me and my sister, I think, even shared a cat suit. So we had to get changed in the middle of a hoolie, you know, passing wow. this thing over. That's, that's pretty Scottish. Ski, yeah. ski racing <laughs> yeah exactly and then you know up in edinburgh so we were at the dry slope at the dendex um dry Helen, slope yeah, yeah Helend. and you know there's that whole small world of like you know scotty scott mcmorris and and all that and elliot neve you know it was this little bubble of scottish snow whether you were a snowboarder or a skier and actually skiing in snow was the kind of thing that we did for years and i kind of fell out of it maybe when i finished school started traveling went to you know not didn't go to uni and then found this thing again and we're like wait a minute i've been missing this so snow has been and the mountains have been a massive thing for me for my whole life until the addiction the heroine of all sports uh surfing took over <laughs> right yeah so is that quite late then for you to get into surfing so yeah how'd that I'm, come about I mean, same with me. To be honest, I was twenty when I first surfed, it's like the last one, last one that I got into. So, how did, yeah. what, 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 were you just up north and sort of gave it a go, or what, what was the way in? It was funny, actually. I was again. It was stuff working for Red Bull, and there was just this job came in. They're like, right, tow a generator up to Thurzo. I was like, Thurzo, the hell are we going to do up there? Like a World Surf League. QS, blah, blah, blah. Didn't even understand what was being said. I was like, cool, sounds good. Take a box of cables, head up. And it was the Coldwater Classic. So, you know, you've got the likes of John John and Sonny Garcia, you know, and all these names, which I didn't have a scooby who they were. Maybe I knew who Kelly Slater was. Pretty sure he wasn't there. And it was kind of this eye opener of, ah, all right then. That was quite a good wave. And I'd played around before, that a wee try, but you know, it wasn't really into it. And I think I did that event for like four or five years. And during that transition of kind of seeing that, I was still doing a lot of winters out in Engelberg in Switzerland. So I'd work the summer. And I then, love Engelberg. Yeah, it's a great little town. And I'd work my ass off. And I just, I bumped into it years ago, that place. And I just sort of wanted to find a place that there was no Scottish or English people. And I just wanted to go and hide. And I thought, well, Switzerland, that'll work. And and found that little place, and I would just go back and forth from summer and winter, and you know that that took me all over the place, all of the Alps for work. But I had a couple accidents, got in a couple slides, and also lost a couple friends in different accidents, not not related to me being there. And this kind of whole shift was like, wow, what am I doing? You know, I'm finding myself all winter just pushing the limit, pushing the limit. And then on the drive home, stop off in Chamonix. And, you know, now when I look back at it, I feel like go and try and kill myself before I go home. And 
I just felt like I needed to slow down. I loved it, but the addiction felt so strong that I was, I didn't want to end up as one of those friends. Was that like ignorance though? Or cause, cause you know, when I, when I look back, like I like absolutely cringe when I think back to what we got up to in our early seasons. Like, I mean, there were, there were certainly people that, that knew better than my group of friends did. And I wouldn't say we were like massively reckless, but there was definitely some, you know, I, I think just generally there wasn't the culture of, of awareness around mountain safety that there is now. Let's put it that way. And, you know, Engelberg's like a proper fucking full on ski town. I mean, the, the terrain is like genuinely quite scary, a lot of it. And, and like really, really like easy to get to as well, isn't it? You know, you can get yourself in trouble up there like pretty fucking easily for sure. Yeah. I would like to say that it wasn't willful, but actually on my first winter in Canada, I actually went to Nelson in BC, little place, little backwater. And it was, it was kind of an inspiration through my sister, through a friend of hers. And the first thing I did actually, and I think it was kind of under her instruction a bit, cause she'd had a pretty interesting baptism of fire in Chamonix where she started doing winters and said, look, go do an AVI course. And so I did this AVI course with this amazing guy, Tim Ripple. And had this real awareness so when I came to do my first winter in Europe I had just done a level one so you know again you know nothing but I'd scratched the surface of it and I guess the thing with Engelberg was it was pretty bizarre because on any given winter you'd get all sorts of characters turn up you know like the whole TGR crew would turn up so one day you've got you know Jamie Pierre and Shane McConkie and, and all these crews were coming really early on before it was really that well known and you're out buzzing around with all these people and i'm no pro athlete but that is who you end up hanging out with and that's who you end up skiing with and you just kind of follow along with that so it was kind of weird like i think some of the biggest incidents or accidents i've been close to are actually with professional athletes if i'm honest like because they are in that top one percent that could potentially outrun an avalanche yeah well yeah well i guess your risk like your acceptance of risk changes, doesn't it necessarily? Cause you're yeah. putting yourself in a position where you've got to like earn a living in those environments really. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did a trip to Engelberg. I was lucky enough to write a book. A, it was a while ago. Now. It was about 15 years ago. It was like a snowboard guidebook and I did a great, did a three week trip around Switzerland. Uh, like, you know, research, <laughs> researching that and we stayed in Engelberg <laughs> stayed in that really posh hotel in the corner like the old faded sort of Victorian hotel whatever that's called like it's called something like the Grand Hotel or something oh the Hotel Europe or something isn't yes it? yes exactly. stayed in there um and I, I just remember it really clearly because we went out in that like Mexican bar like the cantina place oh uh, like the Yucatan yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's loads of there's loads of American soldiers and uh, airmen in there because there's some air base that they were all coming down from to go skiing super young boys ended up getting pissed with these young like i think they were just out of like you know training school or whatever all like 17 18 from like tennessee and arkansas and one of them said to me where'd you learn to speak english uh, <laughs> we were like <laughs> we were like he's got to be joking you know and we're like well i'm english and he's like, yeah, I know, but where'd you learn to speak English? Like, I actually thought America, I mean, yeah. And he was about to go off to Iraq to, <laughs> to 
yeah like wow okay that, it, that's 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 your peacekeeping force <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting because like so the reason i ended up in engelberg was uh, a friend of mine chris from school managed to get a job at zurich uni he's a tropical tree ecologist i'd done my winter in canada and i said look i'm gonna go do one in europe and he was like oh do one near me then i can come and crash on your floor because you know it's an exorbitantly expensive country especially if you're like a junior scientist he's living in flipping zurich you know it's an hour and a half two hours on the train and so i emailed everyone in town every hotel you know kind of saying geezer a job and the only person that sort of amused anything was this woman at the Schweitzerhof, the hotel, which is just beside where you stayed. She said, yep, yeah, come and have a, come and have a chat. So I turned up, drove my car out, didn't know where I was going to stay, found a place at the youth hostel, went and met her and the chef, chef could hardly speak any English. And he just slapped me on the back and said, Scotty whiskey and put his thumbs up. And I was like, oh, yeah, Jesus. you're in. I'm in. There we go. I've got the Scottish card quality. And, and this obsession for god knows how many years 10 years kind of started and it was just you know eat sleep go ski drink beer chop vegetables in the restaurant you know four days a week and it was magical you know it, it was like brain off and and kind of just enjoy myself and you know it i never experienced something like that in the alps you know it's it's such a cool place it's very busy now as everywhere is but i'm glad i got that little snippet of kind of five years of of just just as a whole bunch of swedish a uh, bunch of swiss that's it and then maybe one frenchman of a friend pat yeah i was gonna say but loads of swedes in engelberg right big swedish sort of ski town isn't it a bit like sham sud like it just seems to be one of those places that the swedes gravitate towards yeah yeah Schwed, um some of the i think some of the engelbergers ended up calling it schwedeberg like you know, right. the, the, a bit of a toy now. but you know lots of brilliant lifelong friends and you know like one really great photographer i mean many but oscar anander the amazing photographer that's been based yeah, yeah. there for absolute well, he's, ages he's involved with the ski lodge isn't he that guy is that right um not in a financial sense i mean all his stuff's in there but right he, he was part of that that ski lodge has gone through a number of iterations of, of where it started um but yeah you know he's he's brilliant and he's been a pal for years i mean God, I ended up on a trip to Alaska with him, um, which was a total mistake. That was really interesting. Spent a month sat in a house waiting for the storm end. And we, one day we got in a helicopter. We got up there. Some massive slide kicked off, and they just came and picked us up and took us back, and that was it. So my AK experience involved looking at a window, getting one helicopter ride, and then snowmobiling up and down the highway, um, playing off the... Um, the side banks it's about as radical as it got <laughs> that's the risk in it that's the risk of it yeah. but you you were you alluded to i'm going to call it like a self-destructive streak i'm going to politely call it that um with so what so can we can we talk about that a little bit because because that obviously sounds slightly alarming uh <laughs> well you know like so what what was going on there then because you know you're basically saying on reflection you were putting yourself in hazardous positions on purpose like so so that you know that's quite a big it's quite a big statement you didn't say it that directly but that was the implication so what what's all that about yeah fair play you know i think that only really came you know with a degree of hindsight but definitely a little bit of knowledge of what was going this kind of need for speed or the need to push yourself or to find that kind of fresh untracked glide and to just see how far you could push it. 
I don't know where it came from. And, and, and it, it did start to change as I started to get to know older folk and I would go get into ski touring and you'd have to slow the pace down and you know, get to know mountain guides. But I don't know, man. I, I think it, again, probably stems a lot from the dyslexia, you know, not to use it as an excuse or, or anything in that sense. But it was just when I get into something, I'm so hyper-focused and I'm so into it that I just go and go and go and go and go and go. And up until recently, I wasn't really able to catch myself and have that perception of myself. And I, yeah, it kind of scares me actually to think, you know, when I look back, it's like, what were you up to? But there was a lot of calculation in that. But with snow, you just never know, do you? You know, there's, there's that unknown element. And I guess that's part of the fun, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But it's, you definitely, you definitely kind of talk about it though, as if there was almost like a a deliberateness to it rather than, because I recognize the situations that you're talking about. Like, you know, you can, you can, you can be on a hill, you can be in your twenties and you can be at the top of a run and you can like talk yourself into doing the run because it looks like it's going to be fun. Like, and that's just sort of being a young fuckwit really, you know, like there's, I'm not excusing it at all. Like, and, and like you, I completely cringe when I think back to some of those scenarios that we were in, but you're definitely talking about it in a slightly more deliberate way. Yeah. I, I think I was probably trying to prove something to myself. You know, I have uh, little bits of tape on my laptop and my van that say I am enough. Now, the reason I've got that on that is that when I was that young little kid and I was told I wasn't, I was told I was stupid. That kind of stuck with me or massively has stuck with me all through my life. So I feel like this slightly self-destructive nature could be kind of due to that and i'm i'm still trying to understand that at the moment it's 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 really quite new for me but it's it's well pointed out matt it's it's confusing as in as in that you want to disprove the point or prove the point oh wow yeah no it's it's disprove actually you know it's it is disprove it's like look what I can do but not even to show off to other people it's not about showing off to the outside world it's to it's to me it's to the, to the little kid or like a nod to that scared little child maybe because one one thing that I would say is obviously you've ch- like you're talking about I'm not even going to use the word negative because I don't think that is negative I, I'm going to say that that almost sounds like a combination of what you're talking about and like youth let's say um but you've definitely channeled these challenges that you faced emotionally in a, in a positive way. Again, like if I come back to this, I'm just going to use the phrase owning it for, for want of a better phrase, you know, um, that's a really positive thing. That's a really like confident confidence about better way. It's a real confident thing, you know, to, to be, and, and quite a rare thing. I think like, I don't know anyone else actually thinking about it. Who's, who's defined, the parameters of how they have a relationship with people by taking charge of, of, in this case, their dyslexia to the extent that you have. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
and again if i if i use my wife as an example like she definitely doesn't do that like she she um she still lets lets society dictate the terms of that relationship if that makes sense whereas you're 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 really like not doing that you're really you're saying like look this is the deal and if you want to interact with me we're going to do it on these terms because this is what works best for me. And I I think that's definitely the right approach. It's impressively confident. And it's also like really, um, it's actually quite generous because it, because it helps people understand it again. Like I talked about with, with saying, do you have to do a lot of work for other people? You're doing that work for other people. You know, you're joining those dots. You're saying like, here's the deal. Here's how it works. I've already thought about this more than you've thought about this. So we'll, we'll do it this way. Like that, 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 there's a lot going on there and it's, it's very confident is my point. So that is interesting because you've, cause you've, you've had these, you've chosen to channel all this in a very confident way. That's, that's, that's the point I'm groping for, let's say. So, um, in finest cod psychology tradition, where's that come from? <laughs> um, <laughs> no man really well uh crafted in that sense that you know there's a lot of it could people could probably look on to the way that i have and do live my life and you know i don't see straight paths you know life is pretty much a big wobbly ocean that i'm just making my way through but i guess i made a very concerted effort and i am making a very concerted effort more and more as i start to understand myself and my dyslexia about being proud about being dyslexic and showing that it's okay to be vocal about it because it shouldn't be it shouldn't be this thing it shouldn't be this like hanger on like i think ed touched on it in on his podcast with you to go back to ed lee's um he talked about this thing where he was thinking oh is there this superpower is there this like higher sense of consciousness and that can also come over as sounding arrogant and i don't want to say i'm better than anyone because i really don't believe in that i believe i really believe in in just an equal thing you know when you when you come to someone now i try and always meet them as level as i can and i think for me i do this because i wanted this from someone when i was a young kid i wanted to know older dyslexics i wanted to see people cutting different paths to to do all that and and it's becoming a bit in my world where i realize you know maybe i want photography to be 50 percent of my life or you know to pick an arbitrary percentage but what can i do also with that work and the time that i'm afforded out otherwise to give something back to whoever it is whoever's there like I'm going to keep doing what I'm going to do and I'm going to keep throwing it out there and I'm no longer going to be anxious about it. If you're in, you're in. If you're not, you're not. Whatever. Don't judge me because I will, I'll try and smack you if you try and judge me. Like I'm, I'm sick of being judged like that or, or having other people judged. I, I try and let that stuff wash over. And yeah, I, I think it's, look, I've not actually talked about this before and I'm gonna, which is, along with dawn days that we'll touch on this experience, this thing that happened and this, I lost a really close friend of mine, Jamie, about 10 years ago. She took her own life. And I was in New Zealand at the time when I was making this transition. 
And I will never forget that moment that I got that phone call. And there's a big history to this about me and the partner at the time, way back when I met Heather and Jamie, we helped her, we stopped her a couple of times, as did many people. But ultimately she was always gonna do what she was gonna do. But it's taken me 10 years to really compartmentalize that thing. And I only really consciously realized why I'm beating this kind of drum or whatever I'm doing, I don't really know what I'm doing. But that sole thing is the loss of that person to me. And the thought that if one person can pick out a little nug out of my nonsense that helps them make a committed action for themselves to go and do something, then I will keep doing it and I will keep doing it and I will keep doing it. Because I just feel like, what else am I here for? Like, I'm not here to line the pockets of corporates or, you know, work for X, Y, and Z brand. You know, I think more and more, you know, like working for Patagonia, doing something for Finisterre, like these these names that everyone puts up, like, it's all kind of bullshit. It's, it's the people, it's the interactions, it's the, that's the stuff I love. Sorry, I kind of went off on one there. No, I totally agree with, I, I mean, like, that's what the podcast's about. That, that is exactly what the podcast's about. I mean, I'm lucky enough to work with Patagonia, for example. Um, but what I should say is that there's a, there's a purity to what you've just described, you know, like, which is the heart of, of like all these things that we've dedicated our lives to and everyone that's been on the podcast has dedicated their lives to. And I totally, I totally recognize what you're talking about. I think like that, that's the important shit. You know, that's, that's what, that's why I've done 180 episodes of this and give it away for free, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Because I think it's important, like this stuff, you know, like, and it's just a vehicle as Dawn Days is, which we'll talk about next, I think, for you. And it's a vehicle for that, to, to try and communicate that. And yeah, I, think and that's it, re- I, I think that's really important, personally. Yeah, I've been thinking about like, you know, I've been doing this photography mentorship course um, in last year with this lady called Christina Force in New Zealand. And she's, she is a force of nature as, as her name says, but it's made me think about myself. It's made me think about the work. It's made me think about the motivations of, of what I'm doing along with having gone and got a bit of um, act therapy back in January, February, March, you know, when the pandemic hit. And then again, working with a lady called Jenna Johnston, which is kind of what would be coined by society as a bit more woo-woo side of things. And and ultimately realizing that all these things are like coaching for your mind. You know, I'm not trying to wash over the fact that I'm going to get counseling and then like cue American voice, can I go and see my counselor? You know, that <laughs> kind of thing. It's, it's like all of that shit needs to go and realize that it's any of these things is just coaching. Like, how do I deal with these thoughts and feelings? How do I get the best out of myself? How do I give myself less shit? Because then I can turn up and be a better partner or a better son or whatever. You know, it's like you don't give a shit about yourself. Then it's going to be pretty hard to give a crap about anything else out there. Yeah, definitely. So you're still getting up at 3.45 every day. Yeah. That's a strange one. I don't quite know what's happened. You know, this. <clears throat> this dawn days experience of starting getting up at that time. But it, it kind of happened before that. 
I don't know why that's the way. I've tried many things from diet to meditation to all sorts of things. And I've currently just accepted that this is what it's like at the moment. <clears throat> and for whatever reason, the universe has decided that I get up at 3.45. I'm sure it won't be that for the rest of my life. Um, and I just have to kind of work my life around it at the moment. Is that, would you term it insomnia or are you just getting up early? Nah, just kind of getting up early. Um, you know, I've tried pushing it later at night to see if I can then sleep, but it doesn't work. So, you know, ideally I go to bed at 7.30, between 7.30 and 8.30 p.m. Yeah, I mean, I if I get need to get stuff done, I normally get up at 5, like, and getting, I can get into a routine of that quite easily. I quite like it because you can actually get so much done. Like if if like when I had to finish the book that we've just done, I was doing that. Like getting up at like well, I set my alarm for like half four, cup of tea, get up, be working at five, and then can kind of get like this sort of concentration, heavy work done. Hour hour and a half on that, and they say like half six. You know, <laughs> it's like take dog for a walk, get back. And then, you know, you've pretty much done a load of shit before everyone else is getting up, like, which is, I don't know, it just works best best for me. I'm not somebody that can, like, work late into the evening or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, so, I think, so, I mean, go on. No, I think actually just touching what you're saying is ultimately what I've realized is that, you know, when you understand this rhythm that you work in and that morning brain, there's something about that. If you are a morning person, you get up and you're just like, have your cup of tea, get in your zone, do your thing, and then get out and walk. And it's still, you know, you've still got all this time. So I think that's what I've learned from from the dawn days thing, really, is is a committed action to yourself in the morning, whether it's work, whether it's yoga, whether it's meditation, whether it's just watching the sun, whether it's, I mean, it literally anything, it doesn't matter, you know, just because we've all gone out with our cameras and taken photos of the dawn, you know, I think I think it can be anything. So it was, so it was Dawn Days was a product of the fact that you started getting up early and you, that, that was one of the things that you did. You, you got up and took photos of the, well, maybe if you explain what it is and then yeah, for people so, that well, don't, don't know what it is. Yeah. To give a, a little cross section about what Dawn Days was, it was actually a phone call on the like third or fourth last day of April with a pal of mine, Nick Pumphrey, photographer down in Cornwall. And me and Nick had met through the kind of whole Patagonia connection, being on tour in Europe. And he was down in Hossegor, kind of living down there with his girlfriend and working from there. And we were just chatting and we had this really honest call. Every time I'd met Nick, we did have these honest, raw conversations. I would be quite blunt with him, I think, probably when I met him. And he just said, look, I'm going to swim out like every morning just take the camera at the blue hour, the hour before sunrise, just see what happens. I'm missing getting out. My head's a bit of a mess. I'm doing all this reading of books and this and that, but I just need to do something every morning. And as soon as Nick said it on the end of this call, I was like, pal, I am there. Fast forward two days, two more massive hangovers, the liquid experience that was locked down. And I just thought, I've got to do this. It wasn't because I felt shamed by him or anything. I just thought, I need this. And I jumped out, you know, got my water housing together in the wetsuit, down to the beach. It's 10, 10 minutes walk down to there. Absolutely Baltic, 
beautiful sunrise and I just started taking photos and little bits of video because I've got this amazing setup that I've traveled around the world with to take photos and film with but I've never been to the beach in front of my house you know which is 10 minutes walk there ain't no surf in Portobello can't remember the band that's got a, a tune about that but <laughs> there's nothing you know it's murky there's uh the waterworks like you know the shit salination for Edinburgh is like off to your left there's a shit pumping pipe down to the right there's god knows how many stormwater drains you know, so it's not exactly very um, pretty in that sense. But what I relayed was when I got in the water, I was just there. I was in the zone. I was doing my thing that I'm happy with, being in the water with the camera. And just like you get down to the seal's eye view of the world and you watch in the light and just every single morning, I just see something else. I think something else. And and the kind of the lady I was working with, this act therapist, um Helen was like after a couple of weeks of chatting with her and I had started this hadn't chatted to her for a while and she's laughing the first time I call her what are you laughing at she's like you're doing exactly the principles of act it's like am I she's like yeah you've you're making a committed action to yourself and something for the greater good and you're doing it every morning I was like oh yeah because I'm not a routine guy you know I, I'm horrendous at that I've never had one I don't until now, I didn't know what they were and I didn't know how beneficial they were. So this this thing happened. Me and Nick would talk once a week or twice a week on the phone and we'd be putting photos up and I was putting videos up and working with musicians, you know, locally and then globally, friends sending me tunes or vibing off the thing or how they're feeling. And this, I just spat out this kind of month of photos and videos. And I was really honest below in the in the text and I would write these things as a kind of stream of consciousness and sometimes I'd ping it to my dad to get it um, edited if it was time or send it somewhere else or I'd start using this Grammarly thing which has been an amazing app to help me and sometimes I just to stick it up and be like you know what this is this is what I am this is who I am and um, it was a very kind of raw and open thing and and I just made this decision I was like sod it if I'm going to be on these horrendously curated algorithmically driven echo chambers then I might as well just be me like I accept it I've always known what they are like here's Mike I'm a freckly loud ball of noise <laughs> but it's a powerful idea and it's it's obviously been taken up and taken on a life of its own it's over the last year now isn't it yeah, so, we're almost a year. Um, so can you can you explain how that's developed? Because there's a lot of people, I don't know how you would even phrase it, but that have really, you know, the idea struck something with them and there's a lot of people also kind of doing, you know, doing this same act now, aren't there, at, the, at this time? Yeah, I think that's actually a nice way to put it. I, I always find it hard and sort of never want to pigeon anything whole in life with, you know, an act it is just this act that you're doing and so yeah it was me and nick to start with and then his pal warby who was really struggling at the time he was inspired to get in the sea he hadn't been in for like 20 years or something crazy um and then got himself in and that was just us for the first while but then as the year grew on and more people were kind of doing it every so often and in january when me and nick kind of texted each other saying what are you thinking i'm thinking you know we're going into another lockdown we might as well 
And at that point, it was crazy. We had people from like Shetland all the way down to Cornwall. You know, Chris McLean, pal of ours, you know, joined in this January as well. And there was people just doing it for all sorts of different reasons. And I think that's been what's really beautiful. And, and me and Nick actually caught up on Sunday. And um, it's been ages. We're both horrendous at getting a hold of each other. And we kind of had a little bit of a reflection on that about the positives and the negatives of of something like this because as with anything you can become addicted to even the things that are good for us so we touched on that sort of subject and i think that's what's really interesting is as as this kind of act develops through different places like ireland and wales cornwall shetland uh, there's some aussies that have been doing it you know my pal james parry he he went and did a couple and just said it was such a breath of fresh air to go and do something different and not take a picture of a surfer there's a lady down in um God, near melbourne that's kind of going out with a little crew of people and it's just been really interesting like connecting up with these people like i'm taking times to not just text people but have voice messages or have calls with people and try and understand like what they're doing and why they're doing it because it fascinates me um but this danger the danger of the obsession, you know, it's this classic, the human fascination with intoxication. Starts when we're a kid, we're spinning on a merry-go-round, you get off and you feel dizzy. I mean, even to this day, I do that with my goddaughter on the beach at the moment, and it's still awesome. But, like, whether it's a device, whether it's a substance, whether it's love, God knows it all. You know, we, we, we get so into these things that you kind of become so laser-focused, and I think that's the beauty of the likes of these things as well because you really really you just go all in and and now I, I step back and I look at myself and go shit am I banging a drum I look down at my feet am I standing on a tatty box a potato box you know am I am I ranting about something and why is this person doing it why is that person doing it you know and then again step back what's that person going through I wonder what they've gone through in their life you know and as we scratch the surface of slowly connecting up with all these different people, I'm fascinated at like some of the stuff that people have gone through and what this has given them. But the ones that are then going, ah, I can't do this every day. You know, like uh, there's an amazing lady in Ireland, Hannah, she's been doing it every day in January. And then I realized she didn't have her wetsuit on. And she was like, oh, the thought of getting into a wet wetsuit every day, just didn't <laughs> like the idea of it. I'm like, what? but you're going to go in in four degrees and you're cozy. And she's like, oh yeah, there's a crew of us. It's grand, you know, like, but she explained her story and we're going to put her story out soon about what had gone on for her. She had lost someone. She was struggling. She went to see a counselor. And then the counselor had said the same thing was like, look, this is great that you've got this committed action, but how can you integrate what you're learning into the rest of your life without having to go in every day? How can you take one breath or put your hand and, touch a pebble in your pocket and just kind of find that little moment of calm and go, Hey, everything's cool. You know? And then that's what this is about for me is any of these actions or anything that I learn. I just want to know how I can interact in, I can, uh, what's the word, how I can uh, incorporate it into my whole day, into my whole life so that I don't have to go and swim every day or. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause like you say, you're replacing, one behavior with another aren't you essentially yeah. if you do that like you know i need a drink or i'm not going to feel happy 
oh, I need to go in the sea because I'm not going to feel happy. I think I think that's really a really interesting point as well, because you know this idea is obviously really powerful that you've had, but also like the whole sort of this this whole movement recently of like equating getting in the sea with mental health is 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 I find it really really fascinating because it is a thing it is definitely a thing and it and you must have thought about this knowing you and knowing like what you've you know what you've unleashed upon the world with dawn (laughs) days with you and Nick you know like I look at it and I kind of think it's giving people part of what they perceive to be a missing part of their identity back obviously that's why i look what that's kind of what i think because it because it's it it's very quickly become like a very tribal thing and i don't mean that as in like the, the negative connotations of the word tribe obviously like but people feeling like they've found their tribe and that and that's given them this sense of identity that perhaps they were in danger they felt they were in danger of losing i'm sure you know what i'm getting at oh yeah um, and that that is very interesting isn't it because and it's also if we're being honest quite easy to take the piss out of as well which is which is another i'm not going to do that because i do it myself but when things become that tribal that quickly and there's even like a uniform that goes with this as as we know you know yeah um that is interesting you know like it, and I, and i certainly find it quite fascinating so why why do you think this idea seems to have this this power and I'm, I'm, I'm obviously not just talking about dawn days i'm talking about the whole wider movement yeah i think that's i think it's better to look at it with a much wider lens as you are matt um and it absolutely fascinates me you're completely right and that's the thing that kind of after january and then i started that job finished the job and a lot of people are like oh why are you not going in do you not want to go in why do you know what, what are you doing i'm like and it was, I didn't know how to vocalize what I was doing. And I'm still going down the beach. I still wake up and I still take a wander. I've got a camera with me. Um, but I'm actually chatting with more people. You know, there's so many people on our beach. There's hundreds that swim through the whole day. And even really, really early, there's a solid crew of like 10 or 15 in their little pods doing their thing. And... I think, you know, it's magnified at the moment with the fact that everyone's been locked down and they find this tribe, like you put it, they find these brothers and sisters that that understand them. But the more I think about it, you know, if I think about three ladies in in specific, the Sunrise Social Club, as we as we called it, and I get to call myself part of the Sunrise Social Club with the girls as well, is that when they're walking down, there's a certain element, there's a certain energy we're actually all now picking up rubbish on our walk because it's like, you know, never walk anywhere with an empty hand and especially when you live on a filthy beach. And when we, you know, those conversations are different from the ones once they've been in. Once they've been in, now you could say they've shocked themselves or you could say that they've just had this thing of being really present and really calm because you kind of need to, on that side, on the the wild swimming or whatever box you want to put it in, you've got to be really concentrated. You've got to be really calm. You know, the people that go in and flap and run don't last long. The people that go in with this calm, sensible, demure, or whatever you want to call it, they're the ones that can last. And I just think that, 
I think everyone's looking for a silver bullet. You know, I, I looked for a silver bullet for the large part of my life. What one thing can I do that's going to sort me out? For me, I've realized there isn't a silver bullet. It's like a cocktail. But it's a non-alcoholic cocktail at the moment of the right little bits that I hear from chatting with someone like you or listening to your podcasts or these photography podcasts I'm in or the act therapy. I think it's about picking all these little bits that I've found that make sense and making my own little recipe. That's that's what I'm learning. And I think a lot of people do get to that point with this. There's people in these tribes or these crews, but then there's these individual characters and they're the ones that really interest me. You know, I'm loud, noisy, and uh, an extrovert, I guess, as as people would say. But the people that most interest me really in life are the introverts. The quiet one sitting on the couch or the, on the bench, you know, that I can see he's got the swimming gear kind of waiting for all the fuss to to finish off. And those are the people that I'm going down and walking on the beach with and picking the rubbish. But picking the rubbish is also a point of conversation with people. It's a, a gentle way in. We don't talk about rubbish, but we maybe pick up rubbish together and then we chat. And there's so much to be learned about it. And I don't know where and what it is. I think it's positive that people are doing it. I think it's, that's amazing. You know, if you're doing this thing for yourself, that's great. I just wonder what happens when things start to spin faster and they can't do that every day. Have they, or or how can, how can people learn to, to take the message that they're learning from it into their everyday life? And when you're stressed, like I, I notice when I'm, shooting and I'm in a kind of commercial environment like I can see my knuckles starting to go white and I'm gripping the camera like it's going to be torn out of my hands you know and it's like now just taking one breath kind of thinking of the ocean or not even I don't even have to think of it you know it's like building little tools yeah that's that's interesting so the so the 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 work as Americans would say um that's twice we've kind of made a bit of a disparaging reference to Americans and we have and sorry America isn't it? that's probably quite bad that's probably as like you know underpinning those stereotypes that we've spent the whole conversation trying to debunk really but I think <laughs> I'm going to try think, and stop doing that I think actually yeah and, and that's judging because we're judging aren't we that's judgmental and, isn't it yeah yeah which is but, probably not, not the point although then, also it's us by thinking whether it would be funny as well that is true. We are thinking we're being a bit funny, but, but but maybe what we're trying to what I'm trying to say by that, and when I say that American, I'm going to not justify this, but maybe explain that a little bit is that that's that negative connotation of something like counselling. Is that it's kind quite of, a British, it's quite a British thing, isn't it? It's almost yeah. like like if we treat it as a joke, then you know we can we can get away with it. But if we, you wouldn't really find a British person like saying with a straight face like. Like, oh, I've got my therapist tomorrow. Like, if if any of your friends actually said that, like, as if they were getting the haircut or whatever, which is kind of how therapy is perceived in other parts of the world, you you, you would definitely be like, wow, okay, you know, yeah. And but why why wouldn't you see a therapist? Like, listen listen to the the good it's it's done you, you know. Which was actually going to be my question. I just kind of it just kind of struck me. But is that been a large part of it? The working out how to you know, for want of a better phrase, live, live your normal life while, you know, fitting these constituent parts, the recipe as you described it, 
for for mental well-being like trying to fit them together in in the everyday because like you say it's not actually that is it i don't think it's that healthy if you come to rely on a dip in the sea every day to feel mentally balanced and i certainly see that with friends online who 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 are super into this and when they can't go in the sea for whatever reason then they they you can see that they're like depressed by that and that's not that healthy is it really you know like you say that it sounds like what you're trying to do is is find the balance you know of making it making these things work for you Uh, absolutely and that yeah so the most important thing of me for me has been talking to people so that started with some great friends my friend adam my best pal chris in switzerland daily calls my pal Stu that lives here you know it was dipping in and chatting with all these guys and my mum and dad you know like having an open dialogue with my partner at the time just being really really honest but then realizing okay they all know me i'm all i'm attached to all of them so there's going to be a bias or or how i'm acting to them so you know hunting out who to go and speak to and, and finding act therapy you know through one of my pals that taught me to surf said, look, I think this would work for you. It's, it's a kind of lighter way of looking at things. And then, then moving on to work with Jana. And those are the things that are the real helpers. Dawn days as such, this thing is just another element of that. It's just one of those little bits. It's not a silver bullet for me personally. And I never want to be addicted to something like I have an addictive personality you know like I'm aware of that I've always been aware of it but like painfully aware of it in the last couple of years and so the things for me is learning like I've got this ridiculous thing of kind of like putting everything into terms of the ocean drive some people mental but for me it's like the mind and then there's the harbor you know like you can let things in and out. There's one way in and out in a harbor. The tide goes in and out. You know, some harbors, no entry when the tide's out. I like to think of that. Like, I've got the control. Like, it could be stormy out there, but what's this calm sea inside me? What do I need to do to, to manage that? Who do I let in and out? Sometimes when the tide's out and I'm having a shit time, I just have to accept that and I have to sit in that moment and deal with it. And that could feel really painful and really scary you know, back last May, but now those times are much smaller. Um, and a lot of this anxiety and stress that I get comes from the dyslexia. And I only really started to understand that last week or accept that when I talked to this guy and he kind of explained my mind a bit more. And I thought, ah, oh, I don't need to give myself so much hard time for that. Because we judge ourselves on everyone around us, our family, the echo chambers of the social media that we're in, the echo chambers of our friends. So I'm just trying to go, right, I'm going to stop judging other people and I'm going to stop judging myself because it's fun to poke, you know, like I I love Billy Connolly, like Billy Connolly is like a full hero. And I think there's an interesting thing with Billy where it's like, it's a double edge with him. He has this amazing self-deprecating, if that's the right word, humor that just kind of brings us all down to a level. And I, and I really like that. Maybe he's a bit harsh on himself and a bit harsh on others, but kind of like think a bit more about like be, be a bit more like billy you know be honest about yourself make a little bit of a laugh out of it but i think why he does 
why he does that is he just kind of like normalizes stuff. He normalizes the shit that you're thinking about, but you never say. And I find myself being that person. I'm nowhere near Billy Connolly. I'm not trying to pretend I am, but like, I like kind of dropping those things that you probably shouldn't say in public. You know, like, why do I like doing, I don't know. I kind of like being the jester sometimes, like to inject energy and fun into a situation. Well, my, my wife does that as well. And she, she puts it down. If, if we ever talk about that, she, she says it just like helps to stay calm in situations that she finds stressful as well. Um, so it's like a kind of coping thing. In yeah. A lot of ways. It's quite an intentional, quite an intentional thing. She's that's quite so interesting. interesting. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe I should get her on. There's a lot of yeah, our friends that would, l- that would fucking love that. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk to her actually sometime about it. It would be yeah, really yeah. I think you guys have a lot to talk about for sure. Yeah, a lot of things that you've said today have really, really like. Yeah, that's kind of why I've raised it a few times because obviously it's like my point of reference. But yeah, interesting. But on dawn days, do you feel um, ownership of the idea? Do you feel proprietorial in any way? Because you know, obviously, you've created this. You and you know, like you and Nick, your original idea has become this, like thing really like popular thing do you feel like a responsibility to sort of steer it in a particular way or or like look after Mm. it yeah i think ownership no um you know so many people have gone out and shot at dawn you know that there's nothing unique in that sense so ownership no you know it was nick's nick's idea to go out and then i jumped on and without a doubt, we're very different people. There's a there's a, a yin and yang element to us. We both think very deeply, um, but we have different paces. And I do feel some sense of like, I call it shepherding, I guess, like in a positive sense. I never want to control anything. There's no rules to it, you know, because creativity should never have rules attached to it. In fact, I just think rules in general in life really get them i've never stuck by them but yeah i i feel the reason i feel i want to shepherd it is because i want to tell some of the stories that i've heard that again like the film that i put out which was a very honest piece with my friend john that i know that that resonated with a bunch of people who have made a committed action to go and get some help and my goal for that was just one person really you know but we know that it's had more of an effect than that. So, yeah. But then what part of that is my ego? You know, wanting to control it? I don't want to control it. What do I want to do with it? I don't know. I'm very much in this question. And me and Nick talked about this on Sunday, actually, after my chat with you. And then I'd had a couple long calls with Owen, with your pal. And we kind of touched on some of these subjects, how the ego can get involved. And like Nick was saying, oh, like, I know I don't have to go out every day, but we're still in lockdown. And I said I would do it with his friend, James Hardy. And I think, was it Mikey Lay? He said the other day to him, just went, you don't have to go out every day. And he's like, I know. But at the moment, <laughs> it's still working for him and it's still serving this purpose, you know? Um, but what I thought was great is that, you know, he's had this awareness, as I think a lot of people during it, if you do it long enough, you have this awareness and go, what am I doing? Well, it's a big commitment, you know, like a year in to still be 
because you're you're allowed to to change and to sort of be like well that's not really i don't need to do that as much anymore you know that's kind of fine it's interesting isn't it but i think you i think from speaking to you you've sort of got the balance of that when we chatted last week you were saying you you're actually quite comfortable with the fact that you weren't going out every day and you would try to be quite careful again not to become a slave to the idea you know to to sort of like define you and just be like well if i get up and do it i do it and if i don't i don't yeah and i think again you know here he goes he's going to talk about dyslexia again but there's this pivot point i was on a call with um this guy billy Plummer and christina who i do this mentorship with and it was about how to shine as as, as christina put it and my project got picked up because we're all doing our personal projects as photographers. So there's 16 photographers from around, from around the world. And they said, like, what's going on here? And then someone said, Billy said, but you've stopped at the moment, haven't you? And he's like, are you at that pivot point? And I realized, yeah, like, this is something that will be a part of me for the rest of my life. Like a new realization about what I love about the ocean. But I kind of think of it as a bit of an octopus at the moment. There's this central kind of core idea an experience that I went through as dawn days, but there's so many tentacles and ways to go off from it. Personally, creatively, emotionally, you know, everything. You know, all of the prob probable personal projects that I will carry on with will be slight deviations from that. But they'll, the things I've learned from doing this thing, like just, yeah. I, I, yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. Like it's maybe why I can't sleep is I'm just so fascinated by the whole thing. Like I'm writing constant lists, doing mind maps, sending memo after memo to my poor assistant, Millie, which is like <laughs> ramblings. And, and I, but I just, I'm excited because I feel like I've personally, for me, I've unlocked a whole bunch of tension and stress and anxiety. And I've been kind of building up, you know, I'm like, just sort of a bit frantic it's still you know it's like oh slow down so I've, it's been brilliant so what is next great segue good segue um i'm working on a dawn day's book thought which is why i was kind of chatting you know bending your ear and um oh and tozer's ear there and that's proving to be really interesting so we're just chatting to everyone that got involved collecting some photos asking a certain number of questions and then I'm going to kind of give people a call and have a chat and just see what comes from a chat and try and understand things and, and ultimately create uh, a coffee table book with a designer pal of mine, Barry over in Canada reached out and said, Hey, dyslexic boy, I get you. I guess you're quite scared of doing a book. I was like, Oh my God, the <laughs> thought of it. I mean, how do you even start? And he went to know you ask your talented graphic design pal to help you. And so Barry's helping me, Millie and a friend Adam in Norway. So we're kind of working on that. And I think I'm just going to take the gas off that a bit and let that develop. Um, that's one of the main things really that I'm focusing on work-wise. It's still pretty patchy. You know, I'm doing things, everything from like shooting coffee roastery, coffee boxes to social media content from them. You know, there's a bit more work on the film to happen. And... I've just got our laser focus for a bunch of personal projects to kind of document some of the people that I've met within my community. So I've spent 21 years on the road. I've lived in this area for 10 years 
and I hardly knew anyone. And I didn't know what, on my do- what I had on my doorstep, which is tons of photographers, illustrators, animators, painters, you know, musicians. And so I'm kind of just really enjoying dipping into my community um, and realizing I live in a big city, but this little nugget of Portobello with the water, there's some pretty interesting individuals that I want to get to know and, and take photographs of. And the, the most challenging one currently is the bin men. They're my <laughs> new best pals. I don't think they think I'm their best pal, but we have this crew of bin men that obviously go up and down and, and clear the, the streets and the beach. And obviously as everything's locked, you know, releasing from lockdown, everyone's feeling, you know, super tense. People are coming down and having fires on the beach. Some people are super respectful and some people aren't. And, you know, I know me just picking up rubbish is just a small blip, but it's kind of this process of me again, trying to understand what's going on in people's minds. For me, it's like, why don't you care? And so chatting with these guys that have been doing it for 25 years, I'm kind of slowly getting portraits of them, but it's like getting blood out of a stone with this lot. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Nice. That sounds like a great project. Got, I've got a friend who does that kind of reportage. Um, who does a lot of stuff, uh, like with working class communities in the Southeast and like refugee communities. And yeah, I mean, it's, you can really dedicate yourself to something like that and try and paint an honest picture, can't you? You know, which is, which is half the battle really when you try to do these things yeah i've been listening to quite a lot of podcasts regarding that you know that that lens that we put on things because we can take something in a certain way and then we can grade it you know you can smash up the clarity slider and it looks really grungy and and, an epic or whatever i hate to use that word but so how do you honestly tell a story i think i've quite blindly gone through my life well, this life of photography and film, quite blindly just taking photos, not really thinking about it, and now realizing that actually there's there's something about taking that time to think and talk with people and work through ideas and start to really ask yourself, why am I doing this? Is this for loads of likes on social media? Is it for me to feel better about myself? Or do I genuinely, honestly want to tell the stories of the guy that's driven a tractor for 25 years picking up trash on the beach and he's called cogs or gogs and i was like you know so uh, where are my motivations and instead of just usually just snap 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 so yeah i quite i'm quite excited to have a bit more of a conscious eye on what i'm doing and why i'm doing it yeah well it sounds like that's a real theme you know like this sort of introspective look at what you're doing and, and try to work it out which is you know one of the, definitely one of the things i've taken from the conversation yeah it's fascinating so with dawn days just to wrap it then like if people listen to this obviously one of the great things about dawn days is the community is the sense of inclusiveness that people obviously feel and like you say it's quite a global thing now isn't it so if people want to take part find out more where, where should they go how should they do that yeah, brilliant. So yeah, um, you can go to dawndays.com. So D-A-W-N-D-A-Y-S.com, um, which I really need to work on that website, but you'll see mm-hmm. my hairy face and Nick's hairy face and a few other people and links to the music of the musicians that have worked with me on stuff. 
and and just connect up with me. Give me a shout, you know, if you want a blether. Um, that's it. You know, it's a simple thing. You know, whether you're painting, whether you're filming, whether you're recording sound, whether you're writing poetry, writing dribble, whatever it is, you know, there, there's no rules to it. So, yeah, just go check it out on there. Hopefully I'll make more of an effort of making that um, make a bit more sense. And then there's a film called The Ripple Effect, which is on um, currently on my, Insta- my Instagram, or you can find it through the Dawn Days website. Um, and if if you want that film and you'd like to put that out on your channel, you're more than welcome. We're kind of letting people do it, you know, uh, and, and use it if they want, because if it cracks, touches one person, then that's great. So, you know, we own this thing, but we don't really own it. So it's like, who cares how many likes and clicks and views it gets? You know, just let's just get it out there. So there you go. That was me and Mike. Hope you enjoyed it. Big, big chat that one, wasn't it? Plenty to chew over. And not least for Mike, who sent me a really nice message afterwards that I'm sure he won't mind me sharing. To wit, yo fella, thought I'd respect the fact that you're not a massive fan of voice messages, so I'd do a voice dictate. Had a walk on the beach at dawn this morning and reflected back on our super super helpful chat. Matt, you've really given me some food for thought as well. Wow, what an absolute bellend I am. This is me, by the way, not Mike. Um, Yeah, I have started listening to my voice messages now. Although if you're a friend, don't think this is a green light. That means I'm going to start listening to my answer phone messages. That's just never going to happen. All right, housekeeping corner. Firstly, big thanks to everybody who's been in touch regarding, well, my rant at the end of the last episode. Apparently it resonated with a lot of people out there, many of whom got in touch urging me to stick to my guns and even put their own money where their mouth is with a book purchase, donation or merchandise vibe. My thanks to you all. It's very much appreciated. People also got in touch to express enthusiasm for the idea of looking sideways live, which was also great to hear. As mentioned, I'm at the very early stages with that. I think I might have mentioned as well that we'll probably do a Kickstarter to mitigate as much risk as possible and to test the market, as us marketing types say, with not an entirely straight face. But anyway, yeah, keep an eye out for that. I will be updating on the newsletter, which you can sign up to via my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. Or I'll be talking about it, no doubt, at length on Instagram. I am at We Look Sideways over there. Should also mention, because I'm fucking rubbish at this, I've got a YouTube channel. I've been putting the videos of these conversations up on the YouTube channel. I, I just mentioned this because somebody said, why don't you think about putting all this on YouTube, mate? And I was like, wow, I must be doing this wrong if I've had a YouTube channel for a year and this guy who is actually quite a keen podcast fan hasn't even noticed. So I'm on YouTube, that's the message. And this conversation, the full video version is on the YouTube. So go and check it out. Speaking of the book, which I kind of did earlier, an update on that too. Basically, we had a printing delay for a load of reasons that are really too tedious to go into here. I think it's something to do with choosing a fluffy little British printer rather than a ruthless Chinese printer, to be completely frank. But we're back on track and we're hoping to ship in two to three weeks at the time of recording this, which, as mentioned, is the end of April 2021. I'm really, really sorry about that. And I appreciate everybody's patience. This is, I've since realised, one of the perils of self-publishing. People, a few people have been getting in touch saying basically, where the fuck is my book? Which is a completely fair question. And believe me, no one is keener than me to get this fucking thing out there. But it's coming soon. I did send a little note about this in the newsletter. 
and that did go out to everybody who's bought a book so if you um maybe you want to check your spam or your junk because i definitely did email everybody about that so what else is going on well at the time of recording this i'm about to record a rare bonus episode with my friend and erstwhile podcast guest lauren mccallum i haven't done a bonus episode for a while used to do quite a few of them the reason for this one well let's just say it's linked to terry harkinson and the reaction to his apology for his historical homophobia a a subject i've personally found quite fascinating and a bit unnerving at points i've been talking to lauren who's a friend of mine and who as a gay snowboarder has a particular perspective on this and in the end we just decided to record a quick episode in which we well unpick i nearly said deep dive but i didn't the issues raised by this latest utterance from terrier so keep an eye out for that one I think it's going to be a good one. Like I say, not recorded it yet, but um, Lauren knows her onions. So we will uh, see how that one goes. That'll just come out in the podcast apps. There won't be any show notes for that. It'll just land on your phone. So uh, if you've not yet subscribed, there's a good reason to. All right, that's it for now. I was supposed to be back next week with Kepa Acero, but I had the first audio calamity I've had for a couple of years now in which basically we finished recording the episode and the audio didn't save doll luckily kappa is an absolute gent and a truly lovely man so we're going to do it again which i'm actually stoked on because i'm really looking forward to chatting to him again so every cloud and all that all right i'll see you next time nice one (laughs) 